Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today, we're going to take a little detour from the norm. We're setting out to solve an age-old argument, one that has everything to do with 20th century music history. Which decade was the best decade for rock music? I had originally contacted author, journalist, and academic Neil Nixon to pursue a conversation regarding some of his books on UFOs, and we'll air that discussion soon. But after finding out that he's an expert on rock and roll history, we got into a row over what was the greatest decade for rock and roll. Now, I'm fully aware that each of you has your own opinions, and you're more than welcome to express them on our Facebook page at 1001 Heroes. I'll read them in our reviews and shows coming up. And we know there's been a lot of great rock and roll and top 40 since 1980. But this rock and roll discussion is going to be focused on the 50s, 60s, and 70s. For now, we're going to dig into rock and roll past, we're going to bring up some memories, and we're going to have some fun in the process. Our guest today is Neil Nixon. Neil is English, so he may be hard to understand, but we have a lot of Brits in the audience who probably think me hard to understand. Anyway, he knows his music. I see him on the Skype screen in front of me, and he's got one entire wall filled with, <laughs> uh, filled with radio cassettes because he runs his own radio show, and on the other wall, he's got his books. He's a very accomplished author, and he's got an entire wall full of UFO books. So he's a multifaceted guy in terms of his interest and his skills. Neil, it's great to have you with us today. Please introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about your background and what your current interests are. Okay. Hello, John. So first of all, being English, you can understand me, yes? Yes, you're doing fine. I was just, right. I was just throwing an early jab, trying to get you off balance. Okay. I could get you off balance. I could say, oh, did you matter? Did you understand that? Uh, what was that? Who's the June matter? What's the June matter? Yeah, that's that's the English dialect from where I grew up. So it, if I spoke Cumbrian, if I spoke the language of West Cumbria where I grew up, I don't think anybody would understand me. Most of the Brits wouldn't understand me. So I'll <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll I'll stick to speaking like this. But it's it's look the thing about music and the other interests. I think they're universal. So we can probably talk about those quite happily. Um, it. it, it basically a simple background. I've been writing for a living since I was a student. Um, and then my proper career was academia. So I was I was from my early 20s till about 18 months ago, I was a, 
I was a lecturer and the probably the most notable thing I did there was I started the first university course in Britain in um, professional writing, teaching people to write for a living. Um, but it, it's always gone hand in hand with being an author and the, the things I'm currently doing at the moment, now that I've got more time to do the things I want, well, I've, got, I've gone back to studying and researching UFOs and I've got a UFO book coming out and uh, I've started doing live talks again about the whole business of UFOs. I'm something of a skeptic compared to a lot of other people. So those, um, those conversations when we get to the big cases like Roswell and Rendlesham Forest, uh, if you get me started on those, you'll probably get some comments online. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> And secondly, uh, music has just been an obsession for, I, I, I can't live without it. So um, I've been writing about it. I've written a few books about it. The, the couple of the better known ones are, I wrote a book called The Devil's Jukebox, which is more or less imagines if Satan was real and he had a jukebox, what hundred records would he have on it? Um, I did another one that did quite well called 500 Albums You Won't Believe Until You Hear Them, which has some of the strangest recordings ever that are on it. And uh, I did one on the Beatles, the, the myths and legends about the Beatles, which are just all the stories that people have put about concerning the Beatles, the, the kind of things that weren't true but were widely believed to be true, like the fact that Paul McCartney died in 1966 and was replaced by an imposter, which was a lot of fun to write. Uh, I, again, I don't, I don't believe a word of those, but it's really interesting stuff to look into. Yeah, we'll talk, we'll talk a little bit about that today. Mm-hmm. Let's set the ground rules for this discussion. If okay. we say if we say greatest decade for rock music, how are we defining rock? My opinion in this instance, I'd like to say that rock is really an umbrella term for a wider assortment of top 40 music, and that gives yeah. us a lot of room to play with with these decades. Rather so than Bob just Marley's rock then. Rather than yeah. just focusing on hard rock or what Yeah, most yeah, people, no, I'm, I'm with you. So so if you want to talk about rock stars, i.e. people who lived the life, even if their music wasn't traditional rock and roll, we'd throw Bob Marley and James Brown in there. Yep, exactly. Yep. Yeah, okay, I can do that. So you're okay with that. Let's Absolutely. set up some criteria. Uh, three major categories I can think of. One, consistency. Uh, the whole right. 10 years would have to be hot. That's kind of what I'm, how I'm looking at it. Um, okay. I, so excuse me taking notes. I'm an academic, so I'll... <laughs> this is my crib sheet. I'll keep so you it agree with me with that. We have a, we've got the whole yes. 10 years of that decade, or let's just, just say at least 80%, okay? Yeah, okay. The second, after consistency, would be innovation, a decade okay. that, that started new movements, new sound techniques, new genres of music, uh, and gave us a lot of, of absolute new stuff. Agreed with that? Yep. So we've got consistency, we've got innovation, and third, endurance. How is the music from that decade accepted today? Okay. So what I'd like to do is cover the decades with you. You and I will start at the 50s. Right. All right. And you can go first on that. First, I'd like you to mention, since we're only covering 50s, 60s, and 70s, I'd like you to kind of give your take on 1980 through today and, and where rock and roll has gone. And I, I'd like to kind of hear your opinion on that. So we don't okay. leave everybody out. We're really discussing we're really discussing older rock and roll here, but we want everybody in this picture. Right. So from the eighties onwards. So basically, from the eighties, um, one of the things that happened in the eighties, which would mean that the certainly the endurance of the music might have suffered a little bit, and the innovation might have suffered, was that the um, the music industry became much more of a player. The the industry thinking in terms of the value of the music. So it became 
much more formulaic. I mean, particularly in America, you know, by, by the beginning of the 80s, your radio stations were very much to do with defining an audience, selling the advertising and keeping the format very, very consistent, weren't they? So I would say the biggest innovations and the best music of the 80s was amongst some of the very biggest performers. So people like I mean, Prince, I would hold up as a, he managed to be an artist in the middle of all of that. But um, a lot of the 80s music at the biggest selling end got quite unadventurous. And if it was taking big adventures, it was people like Madonna who were more or less playing with what it meant to be a celebrity rather than making music that was cutting edge. Um, and the 90s was more of the same, but there was a huge kind of nostalgia boom in the 90s because that was the high point of back catalogue CDs selling. Um, I mean, obviously, there are alternatives to all of this going on the whole time. So, for example, in the 80s in Britain, but less so in America, we had a, the, the indie movement, which is sort of independent labels and bands and stuff who might have taken something like Rubber Soul as a blueprint. And you know, a, lot of, a lot of them tried to write proper songs and, and do it almost like a throwback to 20 years before. And... I mean, the Smiths were quite successful in America. They would be the titans of that in, in this country. But um, from th this century, uh, summing it up crudely, the, the, there's been a movement towards music that just fits into lifestyles a lot more. So, I mean, you know, people make albums for use in particular places. I think that some of the biggest performers in the UK in the first decade that were the biggest sellers, they didn't. Um, translate to America very well, but people like David Gray or Dido, you know, they were making albums that were made to be listened to around the house. They were albums to have dinner to. Um, I mean, by the early part of this century, the most innovative stuff, although it's not necessarily enduring, is certainly coming from rap and it's coming from the kind of more marginalized cultures of America, I would say. Um, so if, if you look at your kind of cutting edge artists in America, Jay-Z was hot at the start of this century and, and you know, in, in, in the sense of taking on what it means to be a, a big music star and taking on what it means to be a celebrity, but having cutting edge music as your main reason for existing the way that Prince was in the 1980s. The artists who've done that this century, particularly in the first 10 years of this century, were basically like from the more prominent ones were coming from the kind of rap culture in America and were taking the best of, say, what Public Enemy and, you know, NWA and people like that had done and were putting it into a slightly different... Basically, we're all... The, the way that Muhammad Ali took on the World Heavyweight Championship to a certain extent, it was like, you know, we're here, we're pretty, you can't... You, you cannot discount us. Uh, and <laughs> currently, there's more of that. A lot of it is much more formulaic. There's quite a lot of music, particularly in this... The country I'm living in now, we, we've just had... The, the last few months, drill music, which is a really extreme form of rap, has been selling so well that it's actually making chart news now. And so there's a lot of that is coming up, and that's the more innovative, cutting-edge stuff. But, I mean, a lot of music is into formulas and stuff. And for my money, the most exciting things that are happening are way away from that. The, the, the other huge development in the music industry in the last 10 years has been the mass availability of kind of online platforms, people like Bandcamp, where within reason anybody can record anything and reach the rest of the world. And um, certainly in the last 12 months with lockdowns and stuff where there haven't been gigs, a lot of people have been finding their more interesting music that way. And without banging on too much about it, my 
you know, I have what's called an alternative radio show. So my my brief on the station I'm on is to play in two hours late on a Sunday night is to play everything that everybody's avoiding for the rest of the week, right? <laughs> um, which, which, yeah, which is great. And it gives me a, a completely free hand. And, you know, I'm finding on Bandcamp, I just go looking for things that nobody's playing and just listen to loads of it and throw a, a certain amount of money at it a week. And you'll find like death metal bands from Iran, you know? Well, <laughs> yeah, on the one hand, that's interesting. On the other hand, if you think about what they're doing, if they really do live in Tehran, which is what it claims on their page on Bandcamp, um, they're putting their liberty and their physical health at risk by doing that. You know, so I mean, that's yeah. that's music. That's that's as that's as dangerous and out there as anything that protesting hippies were doing in the late 60s. In fact, more so. Um, so, you know, that's that's. A brief summary of it at the moment I think I actually think 2021 is a really exciting time and my I've noticed that the I, I pick an album of the year for my show every year and you know we just we, we just go with what we think is the best sounding which is never what the, the press will be picking up on and at the moment you know that my shortlist this this year is um we've got things like there's a band called Cobalt Chapel on there who are a psychedelic rock band it's a it's just two people and they're both very 2021 and taking things from the past. There's a lot of kind of ambient stuff on there. And it's a really exciting time because anybody can release anything. You hit it, Neil. I, I, I agree with a lot of that. I'm really not up on modern music as much as you are. I think uh, the 80s was probably a great decade for country. And I just kind of made the slide out of rock and roll and into country in the 80s. Okay. So I'm so glad I've got you on the other end here. You, you're absolutely up on everything right through today. Well, no, they, 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 this is a really important point, John. If if you meet anybody who claims they're up on anything, don't trust them. It's impossible. <laughs> I mean, like, I, this is absolutely true. So because of having a radio show, I get a lot of free music given to me, okay? And I do what most people with the radio show do. Some, some people I love. If it's... So let's... If it's Tompkins Square Records, which is a little independent label, and they've done a wonderful album this year, which is on my long list for the album of the year by a woman called Elsa Hewitt. It's called Looper. But Tompkins Square specialise in, they've got a lot of American primitive guitar stuff, yeah? Um, but they haven't got a lot of anything, but they've got American primitive guitar stuff. And if it's them, I'll listen to it. If it's a lot of other people, I'll maybe listen to it and put it on a shuffle, and sometimes stuff just comes up like that. But I realised the other day that... Um, I mean, a lot of days I get more than 24 hours of music given to me. Well, I can't possibly live long enough to hear it all, can I? <laughs> you know, and, and, and how do you keep up on that? And if you, if you, if you went to a site like Bandcamp, it, as you're watching it, the new music that's being loaded up just appears on the bottom and just, it's like a, you know, a, it's like a news feed and it's there and gone in seconds. And, and that's, that is, yeah. The, the, that's just one site. There is so much music out there; it would be impossible to be upon it, John. Let's begin our debate with the fifties, and the first, the first of the categories: consistency. The whole ten years. I'll take your opinion first, and then I'll give mine. Okay, consistency. No, because um, the the rise of the teenager in the nineteen fifties meant that the market changed substantially, and. So at the beginning of the decade, um, it was show tunes, it was music coming from the film industry. The big record companies were people who had interests in radio and film. Therefore, they were very conservative. 
Um, if you look at the charts, if you look at any films of musicians from the time, they are conspicuously white. Yeah. Um, so a lot of what later became the most innovative music wasn't really getting the exposure. Well, they were white, um, but they were covering black music. So and black music yes, from yes. The, black music from 1948 uh, in the early and in through the early 50s. Although a lot of it was banned, was really the heart of rock and roll. That's where it all came from. So oh, you could make that yeah. argument that. Oh, you, you can indeed, and that the other you know, Chicago bluesmen and stuff like that. I mean, a lot of that sounds great, but it's um, in terms of. I'm just thinking in terms of consistency, the, the sound and what they're trying to do is, is inconsistent because it took a long, rock and roll was the first of those movements that kind of broke through almost against the expectations and the planning of the people in charge of it, yeah? So, I mean, you see, I'm like, like black music, America called that race music, didn't they? I mean, in other words, yeah, the implication it, was it, yeah, it, it, the implication was it was off to one side because it belonged in that community. There was no expectation that those artists were really going to break out of their own community. And certainly the... Until the, about 1954 and 1955. Yeah. 1954, when Bill Haley hit Rock Around the Clock. Uh, yeah. And 1954-55, when, when Elvis started doing uh, a Rockabilly. Rockabilly yeah. really took hold and crossed out of the country and rock mm -hmm. and, and yeah. southern and, barriers. And, yeah, and, and there were people who heard Elvis before they saw him and didn't know he was white. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and yeah, and absolutely. And I mean, that's that's a hybrid. I mean, and, and it's look, I, I'll, I'll, I'll be honest about Elvis. There's that there are way, way, way more opinions than you could cover in a podcast. I'm when I've had an argument about Elvis with other people, I've always said that in my humble opinion, there is no better music than really good Elvis. Yeah. When he's good, he's great. Yeah. And 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 throughout his career, even in the worst moments, he could pull a performance out of there or make a record that was, I mean, the, the mid-60s soundtracks are pretty uninspiring by and large, but everyone said that this, is it on Spin Out or something, which is one of the least inspiring of his movies, um, to fill out the soundtrack album, he covered Bob Dylan's Tomorrow Is A Long Time, didn't he? <laughs> and it's, and it's yep. brilliant. And it, to the point where Dylan once said that was his favourite cover of any of his songs, and he's he's got a point. Elvis is great, and yeah, certainly. So that so the the enduring music, the best fifties. If we're talking about consistency, I say the decade is quite inconsistent because some of the music that came up from the kind of the the audience forced it through, like rock and roll, was not what people expected. So some of that, it, it the production values are not always great. They, what they're trying to do is not always great. You, in some of the worst records, you, it's almost like you've got people who've got energy battling producers who want to keep them down and some of that, you know. Um, but in terms of innovation, rock and roll is just brutal. It's basic. The big innovation in the 50s is that a lot of the better musicians, the people who really broke through, wrote their own songs, which wasn't the way that it was done. And, and the best of those, Chuck Berry, Buddy Holly, wrote songs that are timeless. Yeah. Oh, exactly. So I couldn't agree yeah. with you more. With yeah. regard to uh, with regard to consistency too, I can't give it to the fifties because the early fifties, nineteen fifty through about nineteen fifty four, was dominated by artists like Patti Page, like Perry Como. That's what you're going to see hitting in the top forty for the most part. Mm -hmm. And there was some yeah. there was some rock and roll starting to creep in uh, with Bill Haley and then others, and then it more it didn't just creep in after nineteen fifty five. It it flowed in. 
And there were a yeah. lot of there were actually a lot of innovations in rock and roll during that time. Uh, guitar mm -hmm. innovations from people like Chuck Berry, um, yeah. uh, bringing in amplified sound, uh, a mm -hmm. whole a whole new game there. Uh, the writing, a lot of the independents were extremely strong independent uh, music companies. You also saw a merge between uh, a country and and rock, and, and a lot of country started to go rockabilly, and therefore became rock and it was good it still makes you tap mm -hmm. your toe today it was good stuff yeah yeah it is i mean another reason i would not give it to the 50s is that the best of those artists were still singles artists so other than one or two albums i mean chuck berry's 50s albums are pretty good the first two elvis albums are absolutely brilliant in my humble opinion but there are a lot of others where even if they've got good singles you're listening to albums where They've put a lot of work into the ones they think are going to be hits, and then they've made they've cut eight or nine tracks very quickly, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because they, they they look at the album as um as something that's going to generate a lot of money. I mean, it's so they want to record it cheaply, but it, it, you've actually got to get to the end of the to the beginning of the 1970s before you find a, a point at which the best-selling album in the history of the music business is what we would call a rock album. One more plug for the 50s. You had innovators in the 50s like Buddy Holly, uh, yeah. who the Beatles uh, took a lot of their early stuff, they said, yeah. from, from Buddy Holly. So you could argue that some of the success that we see in the 60s was inherited from the 50s and it was innovated in the 50s. You had Buzz yeah. Guitar first came out in the 50s. Remember that, mm -hmm. that, that uh, what was yeah. that sound that they created by messing with an amplifier speakers? Well, like the, the first tone thing, yeah, which, which is still to this day, which is still, you know, you'll find proper bands to this day still want to do that because it's, you know, and uh, another thing I think we are, we're underestimating about the 50s, it's another innovation, whilst it's not completely new, is this whole notion of, of, a pop group being celebrities so you know gene vincent and the blue caps where the group have got an identity now that that goes back way way before that to dance bands and stuff but it's that era in the 50s when it looks like such a good idea for young men to be in a group that that the whole notion of, the, of a group to be celebrated as a group with an identity comes into being so you know the whole thing with the beatles suits and everything Whilst they were, it was quite an original look. It wasn't a totally original look. So that there were other people who had backing bands who would dress identically, who would have that kind of stylish, fashionable look. And I mean, again, to this day, young people want to join bands partly because they just want to be in a gang that does that. It's 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 a brilliant idea, and it will. One reason that guitar bands continue is because people just want to be in guitar bands. The whole <laughs> business of you know. If you can make enough noise to fill a venue and get it leaping about and you can have a great time on stage and somebody pays you for it, that's just brilliant. It's a really good idea. And that idea with rock and roll comes from the 50s. I mean, OK, smaller dance bands had been doing it before, but the particular experience of that with rock and roll and it being kind of almost primal, that's a 1950s thing. And it, it's, it's funny enough, the, the people who are best at it were some of the more marginal acts of the 50s, and Gene Vincent would be a case in point. A few hits. He was, an, he, was he came from the area that I'm from. I'm I'm from Virginia Beach, which we uh, right. talked about yeah. earlier in the show. Next to Virginia Beach, it's called the Hampton Roads area. It's part of the Hampton Roads area of Virginia, which includes Norfolk, Portsmouth, Newport News, actually mm. Williamsburg on the outskirts. 
uh, in Suffolk. Portsmouth is where Gene Vincent and the Blue uh, Gene Vincent came from, and the Blue Caps. All right. But uh, yeah, he was uh, he was big. High school was it High School Confidential? I think was one yeah, of his yeah. one of his big ones. He yeah. had some good stuff. Yeah, and in fact, I played not long. I still play the I bit of that on my show. I played um, Blue Cat Bob the other day on, which is because it's got a spoken word introduction. It's a again, it's it's an unusual '50s song, and and Gene Vincent was you know. He wasn't great for that long, and he had a few problems. And he, he, yep. he the end of his recording career was not a happy time in general. But um, he was one of those who he left stuff that's enduring, and and people just keep go back and discover it. And it's you know if you're in any kind of proper band, I mean all, all that stuff, everything's available all the time now. So you can go back and find this stuff. He's probably more popular in the 21st century than he was you know towards the end of his own life. And one one more thing about the fifties, I can't. I'm gonna. I'm good. I've only got this this part of the discussion to cover them. But the, that was the age of the showman, uh, Jerry Lee Lewis on the piano. I mean mm. Elvis with the Elvis with the hips and with the the stage routines mm. that he did. There were a lot of guys in the fifties who knew how to make stage work for him. So it wasn't just the music they were putting out, but it was the presentation. It was the act at the yeah. same time. And I think there was well, a lot of innovation there in the fifties. I think people like yeah, Michael I'll, Jackson I'll... picked up a lot from that. Mm, I, I would go with that, and partly because they didn't have the technology to fall back on or the pyrotechnics or anything, so all they could do was what they could whip up on stage. And, um, yeah, completely. And and some of those great – I mean, I, I tell you what, you would not have bet on Jerry Lee Lewis being the last one of those guys breathing, would you? <laughs> <laughs> Look at Willie Nelson. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, that, that is just improbable. And, and yeah, I'm, I'm – I won't go too far into this, but a couple of years ago, just as I was finishing my academic career, one of my last ever professional writing students was a guy. So he's from the outskirts of London, and he would he'd be 19 when I met him. And his all-time musical idol is Jerry Lee Lewis. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So, absolutely. So, Great so, balls this, of fire. Yeah. Right. So th this guy was only alive for a few weeks of the 20th century, but he loves Jerry Lee Lewis. Yeah. Yeah, you know, exactly. Because he's great. And why would you not? Yeah. The old ones may be barely breathing. I think that's how the song goes, right? Yeah. Yeah, but he's... And, you know, I, I, I totally get that. I mean, yes, probably intuitive kind of just performers who are just expressing themselves as just, just like that, doing very little other than just being themselves. The 50s probably is as good a decade as any for those. And speaking of uh, guys who've been around for a while, how about Van Morrison? I think he got started <laughs> around 59, didn't he? And he's still going strong. I'll, I'll stand corrected on when he first made a record. Yeah, he's... Um, 64 with Brown Eyed Girl, I think, wasn't it? 64, 65? Yeah, again, I, I, I'm not up on his career to know exactly the but date. But he, he was with a group before then. He was... Them, yeah. Yeah, before them. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I've just heard his latest album. It's bizarre. Ah. It, it's, um, well, it might be. It, it, it's an interesting thing because it's got the sort of soulful Van Morrison chops. At its worst, it sounds like a kind of Van Morrison by numbers album. It's almost like, all right, now, now it's time for, we'll just stand back and let these minor chords go for a bit and stuff. And then, uh, but it, it, the thing is, he's, he's, um, he, he's, he's kind of got very cranky in his old age and he's, he's talking, basically he thinks some of this the whole thing about vaccinations and you know the lockdown is a con and everything and he was he was very 
publicly talking about it in 2020, and now he's he's channeled this into a an epic album. Uh, it got an absolute slating from one of the British music papers. I did, I wouldn't have listened to the whole thing other than I saw a review in it, a review a review of it in one of the British music papers that was so scathing and so bad. I thought Van Morrison can't make an album. He's incapable of making a record that bad, and it isn't. It sounds like a Van Morrison album. It's just that. When he goes off on one about, you know, some of the conspiracy stuff, I think, is this the same guy that made Astral Weeks? It's, you know, he, he has got, he has even more than Neil Young, he's got quite idiosyncratic as he's got older, yeah? I, I always saw Van Morrison as a guy he could change from decade to decade, and he just seemed to grow with music. He, he, he was a great <laughs> writer. He's written a lot of songs that people aren't aware of that he wrote. I mean, just absolute classics. Uh, mm. But also he would change his music. I'll never forget, I'm listening to... Uh, Imus, Don Imus, uh, who was a big uh, radio announcer over here in the in the U.S. for years, um, mm-hmm. and Don, Don Imus had been around in the business since the early '50s and was still doing his own radio show out of New York City. I think until only about maybe ten years ago, uh, but here it is uh, around the year. It was about the year 2000, 2004, I think, and he's talking about uh, and and he brings he's talking about um, Van Morrison. And he brings, he puts on Van Morrison's new album, and man, I loved it. It's good stuff. And here, by then, Van had been in the business for forty years, and he's still putting Ooh. out great, great music. So. I, I, so I, I, I'm not the biggest fan, but I love certainly Astral Weeks and Moondance period because I just think he's, I mean, Astral Weeks is just a absolutely spellbinding record. But I really liked him around things like No Guru, No Method, No Teacher, and Common One, where he's He's playing with some traditions like you can hear the Irish music and everything in it. But at the same mm-hmm. time, it's it's sort of reaching for a kind of spirituality thing, which is, I've got to be honest, which is why the, which is why the current record is such a shocker. Um, it, it doesn't sound anything like that, but he, he's come, he's sharing the same opinions as a guy like Ted Nugent. And I thought, well, I'd never hear that. <laughs> you know, it's, it's but we could go off on one about those john but you know one one thing i love and if we're talking about endurance and consistency one thing i love about music in general um is that i really value artists who never settle for what they've got and they're always looking and they're always trying and when if they do something that disappoints you it's often spectacularly bad to the point where even even then it's interesting yeah uh, and Van Morrison is truly one of those guys, and the the the, the fifty. I mean, Elvis is one of those guys. Yeah. So the 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 fifties threw a few of those up, didn't they? It, it's um, Little Richard and Elvis and one or two of the others went on to have careers that you wouldn't necessarily have guessed at from the end of the nineteen fifties. I agree with you on that one. I'm going to give you my final vote. I'm going to put out of the three decades. I'm going to put the fifties in second. Okay. Between the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and that's for uh, for all three combined: consistency, innovation, and endurance. Uh, I think innovation was their biggest was the biggest feature of the of the 50s. I think their weakest um, probably consistency because you could yeah. uh, you could you could make a good case that was really 55 through 59 were the were the mm-hmm. biggest years for the 50s, and endurance accepted today. Uh, today, I think it's starting to wear out because we had it. It had its big revival with, through uh, television shows like Happy Days and and uh, a lot of flashback uh, style movies like American Graffiti. I don't know if you ever saw that mm-hmm. one, but that was, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, but that'll remind you just how great uh, late '50s music was. 
although the the film time on uh, American Graffiti was sixty two, they were still uh, they were still featuring yeah. uh, movies, uh, good records from the fifties. Yeah, they, they were, and, and it's and, uh, American Graffiti is kind of more poignant because when you looked at it, I mean, it was made in the seventies, wasn't it? it? It was years after that when I saw it, but. It, it's one of those like the last picture show when you look at it and you think about the time in which it's set obviously you know what's going to happen afterwards yeah yeah so the, 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 those guys while they're all coming of age at the end of the rock and roll period the next generation is going to change what's coming on and you know that it, it, that's their time isn't it that's yep. their music that's their time those are their cars everything's going to look different in 10 years time and they won't recognize the world they're in yeah yep so where do you place the 50s uh, between uh, number one, three, number two, no, and number I'm, three? I'm, I'm going to put it at number three, but, okay. which do, do, doesn't mean it's bad because there's there's loads of great stuff in the 50s. But um, I, I, I would think it's more enduring than you think because if you went to somewhere like Bandcamp, which I know I've mentioned before, but any of those sites and you listen to people who are doing rockabilly or something these days, You'll still hear a lot of people active in the nineteen in twenty twenty one rather, who were dragging the nineteen fifties forward. Yeah, yeah. So it's probably mm -hmm. more more enduring than we think because people have taken the ideas and run with them. They haven't repeated it. Couple things for you, Neil. Uh, we're, uh, and I want you to I want you to tell our listeners where they can find your radio show on the internet. Um, and, oh, okay. also, and also your books, and, and I'll give them the correct spelling of your name. It's N-E-I-L, Neil Nixon, N-I-X-O-N. I know. Um, so, yeah, my radio show, I'm, I'm on Miskin Radio, M-I-S-K-I-N Radio. Um, actually, I do have quite a few people who listen to me in America because we go out from 10 till 12 on a Sunday night in the UK, which means that we're on, depending on your time zone in America, we're on in the in the afternoon or early evening in America. Yeah. Yep. Um, and it's called Strange Fruit. There is Gonzo Multimedia, which if you Google it, you wouldn't struggle to find them. They have a mixed cloud account, which has the old shows on it, but they play shows a few months after they go out on a listen on demand thing. In terms of my books, if you put Neil Nixon into the major search engines, there are one or two Neil Nixons out there, but I've got neilnixon.com, so I'm easy to find. Um, so far, I've got the only um, Wikipedia page for Neil Nixon, and um, you know Amazon and people like that. I've got my various books on them, so they're not they're not particularly difficult to get hold of. And um, I've had a few inquiries recently. I'll mention something else actually because I do live talks about various things the Beatles UFOs and stuff and I've got three talks up on um, a thing called SpeakerNet which is a you can find it it's a British site but it's easy to find um, but obviously since the lockdown I haven't been doing the live shows but people have been asking me to zoom them you know so um, you can they can find me on there as well and for all of Neil's listeners my name is John Hagedorn my podcast is 1001 Heroes Legends Histories and Mysteries and you can find that anywhere from Spotify to iTunes, you name it, we're there. And if we're not, uh, ask them why we're not. Yeah, you're, you're easy to find, John. Yeah, the, the, the internet finds you very, very quickly. Yeah. Yep. So and we are good. And we are advertiser supported. And we're going to take a break right now and go to and go to our sponsors. And we'll return with the '60s right after this break. We're back to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. 
talking talking to Neil Nixon about a whole lot of stuff, but especially we're comparing some decades of rock and roll, 50s, 60s, and the 70s. We've already laid out the criteria in part one. We've covered the 1950s, and now we're going to cover the 1960s. I would ask you, Neil, if you actually lived the 1960s, but I'm not sure if either of us want to go in that direction. I got a, I got a hunch, though, that by the, the people have already figured out how far back I go. Okay. Uh, I, I remember bits of the 1960s. I remember men walking on the moon. Yeah, yep. so my, I'm that my, old. My grandpa told me all about the 60s, so I think I'm pretty well informed here. <laughs> Starting off with consistency. I'll let you have the first shot at it. The consistency of the 1960s... Um, well, it's a mixed bag because it's the, the, the 60s are very consistent in the sense of people permanently trying to make great records because the music industry is so well established that hit records are known to be very, very profitable. So people go in the direction of trying to figure out how to write pop hits that make great records. And you know, Motown, for example, very good. It took the whole business of quality control from a car factory and pretty much applied it to his record label and that so when the when consistency in the 60s hits its stride it's brilliant yeah and you couldn't find a single year in the 1960s without one that produced classic hit singles right i mean as in instantly recognizable records to this day yeah i couldn't and agree with the, you more on that one yeah yeah and you know, the, the, the best 60s hits are some of the best popular songs ever written. If you think about popular songs as three, four minute, there and gone, absolute little, you know, movies or whatever, like little snapshots of life. They're all over the place in the 1960s. It's the golden era for that. The albums are a bit inconsistent because it's really only the end of the 1960s that people start to think about a whole album being an artistic statement so the consistency is quite mixed and also some of the better records that are made in the 1960s sometimes came out of places particularly to do with sort of you know soul music becoming a, a major thing came out of places that were not previously the established genres you know so the the, the journey from gospel to soul is pretty well established by the mid 1960s but there's some odd records along the way which are trying to are almost looking for that before they find it um in terms of endurance then you can't you absolutely cannot dispute the endurance of the best 60s records because like i said in 2021 you'd recognize them instantly yeah oh you know, the, exactly yeah so so the, the you know the the beatles the rolling stones the the acts that were massive then are still to this day um massive and innovation this, I think there's two great innovations in the 1960s. That, I mean, there's, there's way more than that. But if, if you're going to say, why was it a hugely innovative decade? Firstly, because record production moves on massively. People like Phil Spector take it to a completely different level, to the point where by the end of the 1960s, you've got people working in the music business who are every bit as creative as the artists, but they, they don't play instruments so much as manage a recording studio. And, and those, some, some of those people don't resemble each other. There's a world of difference between Barry Gordy and his production team at Motown, George Martin, who came up with a lot of the sound ideas for the Beatles, and Phil Spector that we've mentioned. Um, but they're innovative, and those innovations have stayed with us. You know, they, they, they were so good that those tricks are either being repeated or just copied 
or people are trying to do the same thing in a different way. Yeah. Um, oh, exactly. And, and let me and let me uh, just put in a little bit about Phil Spector before before you go to endurance. Uh, in terms of Phil Spector, uh, I was telling you about Imus, uh, Don Imus. He had a story where he was in L.A. Uh, selling records uh, back in the early '60s, and he walks into he walks into a studio that Phil Spector had had rented. I forget what that might have been Westwood One. I'm not sure what the name of the studio was, but it was it was one of the big ones out there. And when Spector came in, everything changed. Spe- he said you had, he had. Two guys, two guys that he didn't know, Don, Don didn't know, standing in front of a, a concrete block labyrinth. And the whole thing was, was to design it so that these guys' voices coming through the mics would also, be, would also be backed up in these sound baffles. And it would make the two guys sound like they had the voices of four guys. And that this was called Phil Spector's Wall of Sound. Uh, and man, did that work. Uh, mm. And he not only used it to his advantage with groups like the Righteous Brothers, which were the two guys that were standing there that, that Imus didn't recognize at that moment, and then a lot of uh, black groups, uh, female groups that came in. Uh, and Spectre could do production like nobody else. He was a very, very picky guy, and he was very strange, but, man, he could do his music. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, there's loads of stories. I, I, funnily enough, earlier this year, I, I found an old copy of a book called Out of His Head, which is a one of the first serious biographies written about him. And I read it again, and it was, yeah, it's an interesting one because it was written in the early 70s. So, at that point, he's, his most recent successes had been things like Doing All Things Must Pass for George Harrison. But I know that there's... there's um. There's an amazing... Well, there's a few amazing stories about Phil Spector, but there's... Uh, it, John Lennon's sometime companion, May Pang, that he was with that lost weekend period when he split up with Yoko, she wrote a book about being with John Lennon, and there's a description in there of both the best and the worst of him doing the rock and roll album, where he's clear, he's creating his wall of sound, and it's you know it's discussed how he did it, and it's it's hugely, I mean, it's just to do with he had an understanding of where microphones and certain other just just like you say just moving things around in a studio could suddenly create that sound. But of course, the, the other thing is that in the middle of all of that, he kidnapped the master tapes at one point, didn't he? <laughs> because he, he, he was beginning to lose the plot. Um, in fact, something else I saw, Barry Mann and Cynthia Wheel, you know, the songwriters yep. who obviously were massive songwriters in the 60s. So if you want to talk about like the innovation thing, this is how... Before the 60s, this didn't tend to happen, but Phil Spector was a producer who just had a vision of sound, if you like. He, he knew, he, he could imagine what it was he wanted to hear. And I know when they wrote You've Lost That Loving Feeling, that, that whoa, whoa chorus, they thought it was an unfinished song. They'd sent it to him with a batch of other stuff, and he played them the Righteous Brothers version down the phone, right? Yeah. And the first thing, I think it was Barry Mann said to him, you're playing that at the wrong speed, Yeah. As in the, the the deep voice, he thought it was a 45 being played at 33, right? <laughs> and Phil Spector said to him, no, this is the biggest record of your career. You don't understand this. And again, one of them, I think it might have been Barry Mann again, said, well, no record with whoa, whoa, whoa in it, i.e. we're great lyricists. No record with that in it is going to be our biggest record. And the whole point being, Phil Spector whoa, had seen the whoa, unfinished whoa. song. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> right? But Phil Spector had seen the unfinished song He'd figured out that Bill Medley's voice was going to work, mm-hmm. and he'd he'd put the whole thing together because he could just imagine how this would work, and he played it to the songwriters, and the songwriters didn't think they'd finished it, yeah. And yep. Phil Spe- and, and because 
because he could be trusted and he had creative control. He was the one who called time on that. And I don't know where it is now, but it was for a long time. It was the most played record on American pop radio. But but keeping it simple, by that point of the late 80s, the people making the movies also often owned the record companies. And they were very good at pillaging their back catalogue to fill the soundtracks. And it was a win-win because these were great songs. So why would you write new songs if you'd got access to something like you've lost that loving feeling yeah yeah because it, it, it you know it, it it worked for the teenage audience in the eight late 80s and it it was a so old that they didn't associate it with the first time yeah that's absolutely so um i know both the righteous brothers turned up on top of the pops in the uk performing it um and of course by that point they're middle-aged men aren't they so they don't look <laughs> yeah. like pop stars they still sounded great. So we've said a lot about the endurance of it. The, the best yep. 60s pop hits are very, very enduring. Um, and so are the best 60s albums. Uh, I mean, you know, the, the, these days, if people want to properly get into music and become musicians, then clearly everything is available all the time. You can, you know, you don't even have to buy it now. You can, I mean, from, from the, the 90s onwards, when CD reissues became a big thing. I mean, certainly I was teaching young people in the 1990s and i would say i noticed a big change towards the middle of that decade that they would they would buy the music of the present day but then rather than buy all the music of the present present day they would go and buy the stuff that had inspired it so we had a huge thing in this in this country called Britpop in the 1990s where we just basically had a whole generation of pop groups again and the the whole Beatles and Stones battle was reenacted between a couple of bands called Blur and Oasis, right? And the students that I taught that were into Blur and Oasis would go back and buy the Beatles and the Stones. You know, and they, they obviously they would see and like Britpop brought, you know, I I'd think nothing of having a conversation then at that point, you know, with somebody who was a it was like maybe 20 or something and they'd be asking me about the doors or they'd be asking me about the who you know um and so that that music is it's endured and you know to the point where people still see sense in it today and, and again people want to copy it i couldn't agree with you more i'm going to give you my opinion on the 60s starting with consistency the whole 10 years was hot and i'll give you my most compelling reason as to why i think the 60s had more emerging genres of music that are still with us today, by the way, if you want to skip over to endurance, they had more emerging genres than any other decade that I can think of. And I'm going to go through just some of them. Folk music uh, started to come right around 1959 and beyond and became bigger in the 60s, especially with the when the movement started, when the social movement started around 65, mm -hmm. 6, and 7. Uh, groups like Peter, Paul, and Mary. I mean, it all started with groups like the Kingston Trio, a lot of these early ones, and then it, then it evolved. But folk music was strong. Mm. You had you had cities just coming alive and producing their own music, and they kind of became their own category. San Francisco became huge, especially in the late 60s, 67, 68, 69. Detroit, with Motown and other labels, uh, was huge. Soul music really took off in the 60s and became, became accepted worldwide. You had uh, acid music. I don't know how we best describe acid music. I just call it acid, but it wasn't exactly acid in the late 60s. It became acid in the 70s. A guy I knew at work once said, he said, John, the, the 70s were a whole lot better. I said, why? He says, we had better drugs. <laughs> I, said, I said, well, I said, your music sounds like it. <laughs> 
We had surf music as an entire category <laughs> in its in its own. Um, we had a lot of solo artists, a lot of a lot of guys who could mm-hmm. come out and cut one record. Which now in the in the corporate well for the last 30, 40 years in the corporate atmosphere that we have, it's very difficult for one guy to come out and do a successful single. He's got to be marketable for at least. Uh, a couple of albums now in order even just to get a break. But back then you had a lot of unique stuff coming out. Yeah. Um, that's just a taste of, of everything. In the late 60s, mm-hmm. yeah. 67, 68, 69, you had, you had new sounds coming out from people like Chicago, which were a, a lot of instrumental, some really good uh, band-style music, some good writing. You had Three Dog Night. You had Kansas. You had, there was just a lot of stuff going on that was really, really good music. And and then the, I didn't mention the British invasion, uh, which, oh, yeah. which really in fact, appeared in 1963-64 when the Beatles decided to come across and play in Shea Stadium. And if I recall, it was the Young Rascals who opened up uh, for them at, at, uh, yeah. at Shea. I'll, I'll take your word for that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, funny enough, not that many months ago, I had... Um, no, I, I played the... Um, Chicago Transit Authority, yep. as they were on their first album, I had that as the big album on my show because I know I know they got very middle of the road later on, but that first album is just exploding with ideas. Yeah, no, I, I would give you that. So you're going to put the you're going to put the '60s as your number one decade, aren't you? We'll return next Sunday night with part two of the Great Rock and Roll Debate with Neil Nixon. Until then, everyone, this is your host, John Hagedorn. This is 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. Everyone stay safe, and we'll be back soon.